on the day of the Columbine shooting, which has now been like 17 years ago, if you can believe that. Uh, Rachel Scott, you may have heard of her, you may have even read her book, but uh, she was a Christian girl and she was outside the school having lunch. Thank you. And the shooters came up. Oh, two, that's really helpful. Uh, uh, the shooters came up and, and they shot her three times. And uh, she didn't die. And I didn't know this part of her story at all. She didn't die. And the shooters came back and they looked at her. The guy named Eric grabbed her hair, picked her up and said, do you still believe in your God? And then she said something that's more profound than even yes. She said, you know I do. And then he said, well, go and be with him and shot her in the head. Earlier, Rachel had written in her diary this. I lost all my friends at school now that I have begun to walk my talk. They make fun of me. I don't even know what I have done. I don't really have to say anything and they turn from me, she continues. I have no more personal friends at school, but you know what? I'm not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus. I'm not going to justify my faith to them and I'm not going to hide the light that God has put into me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. I will take it. If my friends have to become my enemies for me to be with my best friend Jesus, then that's fine with me. I always knew that being a Christian is having enemies, but I never thought that my friends were going to be those enemies. She also said, if I have to give up everything, I will, or notice that part. You see, if I, if I could do high school again, I'd be more like Rachel. I would live far more beautifully than I did. I think about those days sometimes, and I've maintained pretty good friendships with people I went to high school with, and uh, I had little if no impact on their lives because I didn't live a very beautiful life. Um, I lived an okay life. I was a pretty good kid, but, but not a beautiful life in any way. And, and I think you know why I probably didn't live a beautiful life because it's a common story. I, I wanted to be cool. You know, I wanted people to like me. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be like everybody else. I wanted uh, to be in the cool crowd or whatever. And, and so while, while I, I didn't, you know, do some of the things that, that, you know, people do to be cool. I, I was always the good kid. Like I said, I, I still didn't live in a beautiful way because to live ugly was in some ways the cool thing to do. And, and, and here's the sad reality, I think, is that while you don't feel that same thing as strongly today as you did in high school, for a lot of people, it still exists. You don't want to live beautifully because to live beautifully will make you stand out and, and maybe make you less liked and maybe make you less likable to certain groups of people. And so while you're not, hopefully, uh, worried about being cool anymore, you, you are worried about how people will treat you. And so you don't live the beautiful, good life that, that you want to. And, and as we go through this series and as we've been talking about living this good, beautiful life, as Peter writes it down for us as he's inspired by God, 
the reality is, for many of you, I think it's probably that there are two things that will prevent you from living a more beautiful life. One is just that you don't care and you kind of have your normal life and you're just going to not pay attention to the sermons I'm preaching and, and what's written in the book of First Peter. But the other one is if you have stopped and gone, wait a minute, I'm not that way and I want to be that way, then the other big preventer of it is that you will no longer be normal, and if you're no longer normal, then you worry that you might be rejected, and then rejection leads to, you know, a lot of other things, you know, people being mean to you, or you're not getting the job that you want, or losing the job that you have, or, you know, family members thinking you're weird. It can just kind of spill over, and and a lot of different things can happen, and Peter, I think, addresses this very issue. Because we go like, I want to live beautifully, but if I live beautifully, it might cost me something with the people around me, and so therefore, should I live beautifully? We've talked about in, in this series, if we live beautifully, then, it, then it, at some point, somebody's going to say to you, and we're going to read this verse again, uh, tell me about this Jesus guy. I mean, Peter says, live so beautifully that people want to become Christians. But you know the reality is that while that, I believe, will happen, there's also other negative things that are going to to happen if you live a life that is not average, but is above average, is beautiful, is godly, is is in line with what the Bible has has told us uh, about how we should live our lives. And this is exactly what Peter addresses. While some people may go, I want to be a Christian because I see how you live and I'm interested in that, other people are just going to be jerks to you. Maybe you've experienced that before. People just being jerks to you for no reason other than they see that you're a Christian and, and you are, are trying to live a Christian life. And, and here's how Peter begins in, in 1 Peter three thirteen. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, this word good said four times in this passage of scripture. Four times it says good, and and the word means worthy of admiration, admirable, good, good of its kind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The idea is what we're talking about in this series, living a beautiful life. And and I have, at a couple of points in this series, kind of described what I, this is not like a biblical thing, but what I think we kind of mean, what I mean at least, but what we kind of mean when we talk about living a beautiful life. And uh, it's pretty common. This isn't just a Christian thing. This is just, I think, what people want from their lives, like a life that is morally good. Whether you have the same morals as me or not, I think every person wants to have a life, or, or most people, almost every person, wants to have a life that they can call morally good that they follow kind of the rules that are ingrained in them about what is right and what is wrong, and, and they live those things out. We want to live lives that are respected by other people. Every one of us, I think, wants that. We want to have a life that people look at us and, the, and go, you know, and this is kind of uh, relative, but people around us go, they live a pretty good life. It's the reason I think that you clean your house right before people come over uh, because you want people to go, oh, they're, they're organized, you know, or whatever. Same thing with our overall lives. You know, we want people to look at us and go, wow, they have clean house. You know, they, their lives are in order. They're doing things that are important. Uh, that's another thing is we want to be valuable to those around us. Every one of us 
whether we've given up on it or not, somewhere inside of us has an innate desire to, to live a life that matters to the people around us. We want to have lives that are important for our children and for our friends and for our family members and for our coworkers so that if we weren't there, then their life would not be as good as it is with us there. And that leads us to the last one. We want to have lives that live beyond us. Every one of us, whether we think it can actually happen or not, want to have a life that when we die, what we did still matters. It doesn't just end with us and people go, oh, you know, I'll, I'll miss having them smile at me. We want something that goes beyond just they were friendly. We want lives that, that matter even after we are dead and we are buried and people go, what they did for me or what they did for society or what they did for our country or what they did for our world, that still has an impact. And so Peter here, he asked this rhetorical question and the rhetorical question I'll repeat it is who is going to harm you if you are eager to have this kind of life this type of beautiful life who's going to do something bad to you and the answer I think is pretty obvious not many not many, right? Some people will, but not that many people will. There are jerks in the world who will be jerks to you even if you're striving every day to live a beautiful life, but there are not many. And I wanna remind you just at this point what Peter has already told us about what a beautiful life looks like. If we want this type of life, what does it look like? He said that we'll have joy in trials. Not many people are going to go, you idiot, I can't stand that you still have this joy despite all the bad things. Not many. There will be some who are like, I hate that Chad still can smile despite all this bad stuff, but not many. Uh, we've talked about this, removing deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and other ugly behaviors. There's not many people who are going to go, that person never tells a lie. But there are some, maybe your boss, I can't believe they won't just fib a little, you know, just lie a little to sell this thing or to take a shortcut or whatever. There will be some. Peter said this to us, that we ought to do beautiful deeds. There's not many who are gonna be mad at you if you do something nice for them, but there might be some. There might be some who accuse you of certain things, who think badly about you because you've done something nice for them. Like, well, they're just being nice to me because they wanna bring me into their church. And you know, those church people, it's always negative. You know, have you heard this before? I mean, that's a, that's a thought. There's not many people who will be mad at you if you offer to help them move, but there are some who might if they didn't ask you to help move in the first place. Uh, we saw whatever Matt said. I wasn't here and it didn't get recorded, but whatever Matt said, that's part of living a beautiful life. And then we saw uh, that if we want to live a beautiful life, we ought to base our treatment of others on our relationship with God, not how they treat us. We talked about that last week. And so with our bosses and our spouses, etc., we ought to treat them in a certain way based on our love of God and our faith in God and not on how they treat us. And, and not many people are gonna get mad at you if you're nice to them, even though they're jerks to you, but some people won't trust you. They'll say, oh, they're just a little too nice. Something has to be wrong with those people. They have to have a, you know, something going on here. Why can't you just be a little bit more of a jerk? And not many people are gonna get upset at you about being nice to them, but some people will. And so Peter, just at the beginning, is like, hey, 
Who's going to harm you if you try to do good? And I think it's an encouragement right off the bat from Peter to say, hey, stop thinking about the rejection that might come, the hurt that might come, how people might treat you if you live beautifully, because most people will respond positively to your beautiful life. That's encouraging for me, isn't it for you? I mean, just kind of on the most basic level, like if I live beautifully, most people will like it. What happens, I think, is because of Satan or, I don't know, some type of psychological problem that seems to be in every person, we always think about the one person who might be mad at us instead of the nine people or, you know, that, that will like the, the change in our lives. I can tell you that in high school, going back to there, uh, that when I got serious about Jesus and my life became more beautiful, which sadly was uh, for about the last three weeks of school uh, before I graduated, but uh, uh, there were people who said, I miss the old Chad. But almost all of them now would say, I'm really thankful for what Chad has become. Uh, I think I'm a person that they would turn to when life gets hard. Uh, and so most of them would say, I'm glad for what Chad became. But some would say, I miss the old Chad. Now, Peter knows this, uh, that it's easy to suffer for being a jerk, Right? I mean, that's easy to understand. And, and there are people that we can point to and, and say, in the Christian world, you're a jerk and, and you suffer for that. Like uh, the Westboro Baptist Church, which these people aren't actually Baptists. It's one big family if you uh, actually look them up. There's like 30 person family, but it's one big family. And, and they pick it. <coughs> At, at people's funerals, that's how you know them. And uh, they use foul language that I won't even use in my sermon uh, to, to, uh, to say, I don't know, that God hates people, basically. God hates everybody. I think they would say that God hates me for some reason. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but they would have a reason that God hates me. And, and these people get a lot of backlash, don't they? Uh, and, and they call themselves Christians. But Peter, I think, would say, well, yeah, but if you're not living a beautiful life, then you're going to get more of a backlash, you see that? And we think like, well, if I'm just a little bit of a hypocrite, then like if I just, you know, I, I'm pretty much a Christian, but I have these certain areas of my life where I take shortcuts, then people will be nicer to me. And Peter, I think just, again, at the, at the very beginning of this is like, hey, encouragement. If you strive to live an actually beautiful life, then you're going to get less pushback than if you're living a bad life. So why not, if I can fill in a blank for Peter, so why not strive to live beautifully and stop worrying about being cool like you were in high school again? And he continues because he knows that there will be exceptions. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Now, this word blessed is the Greek word makarios, a word I've talked about a lot, a word that Drew, my brother-in-law back there, has tattooed on his body. God save him. Um, 
because I've taught on this word so many times now that it's just in all of our heads. It's, it's a word that means, uh, it was a word that was used for the satisfaction of the gods in Roman culture. And, and the gods, uh, the theory was, uh, could have more satisfaction than human beings could have because they had unlimited resources and they also had unlimited ability to use those resources. And so uh, the, the analogy that I kind of use is, is like a piece of cake, right? Like as a human being, a piece of cake is going to bring you some level of satisfaction, as long as it's good cake, um, as long as it has gluten in it, then uh, it's going to bring you some level of satisfaction, a, a nice piece of chocolate cake. But at some point, if you eat the cake, it's going to, you're going to have a, uh, a negative return on that satisfaction because you'll start to get sick of it. You'll start to feel sick if you continue to eat. In fact, I'm reading my daughter, uh, the book Matilda. And in Matilda, there's this great scene where the principal of the school gets mad because a kid has, has stolen a, a piece of cake from her. And, and she's mean and angry and abusive. And uh, Roald Dahl is a pretty dark person now that I'm older. I'm rereading these books, but, uh, but, but her punishment to this kid is to give him a whole giant chocolate cake and made it, make him eat it in front of the entire school. And you can imagine that he's eating and at some point after he's eaten a while, all of a sudden it goes from satisfying, nice piece of cake to disgusting because he feels like he's going to throw up. But the gods, was the, this is the Roman theory, uh, they didn't have this problem. They could just keep eating the cake because they had an unlimited ability to to use the resources which were unlimited at their disposal. And so I believe when the writers of the New Testament are inspired by God and they begin to use this word, what they're saying to us, and it's used a lot in the New Testament, is that we who are Christians can have a satisfaction that cannot be taken from us that will never have a negative return. It's a satisfaction that is inside of us but can never be based on our external circumstances. And so Peter says, okay, hey, by the way, you know this. If you strive to live beautifully, uh, then most people are gonna be happy with you. But there will be a few exceptions who want to be jerks to you, but don't fear them because you know as Christians that you have an internal satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances. It is not based on how these people might treat you. So continue to live beautifully anyway. I think this is the very thing that changed my life. When I got serious about Jesus it was an understanding of how incredible his grace and forgiveness and love was for me. And so it no longer mattered what people thought, or it didn't matter as much, what people thought about what I was doing, what I was saying, how I acted, because my satisfaction was no longer based on them. My joy was no longer based on them. My peace was no longer based on them. It was now based on my relationship with God. And nobody, despite how mean or how much they might have missed the old Chad could ever take that from me. And so Peter here says, most people will be nice to you if you strive to live beautifully, but some won't be, but don't fear them because as a Christian, as a person who has placed their faith in Jesus, your satisfaction is not based on what other people think about you. It's based on your relationship with Jesus and all the things that he has brought into your life. 
In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus famously uses this word. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we oftentimes wonder, <coughs> excuse me, how can I be blessed when I'm poor in spirit? And he says a bunch of other things, blessed are those who mourn and things like that. Uh, how can you be blessed when you're mourned? And the answer is your satisfaction ceases to be based on your tears and becomes based, it starts to be based on your relationship with God. And it is a beautiful relationship because we know that God came from heaven to earth to live a sinless, perfect life. He died on a cross so that your sins could be forgiven. And then he got out of a grave, which offers us eternal life. In Acts 20, 35, Jesus says this crazy thing that, that you may have heard if you grew up in church, but you're like, how is that possible? It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I think when Jesus utters those words, he's using uh, this word blessed in a way that, that makes more sense in the way we've talked about it this morning. Like when you give something, it brings an internal satisfaction that can't be taken from you. But when you get something, somebody can just take that. And then you go, oh, well, it's gone now. It will break down. It will go away. But to give, that's something that, that can't be taken from you. In Romans 4, 7, and 8, we read this, blessed are those, blessed are those, same word, uh, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord will never count against them. And this is what Peter is getting at. If you strive to live beautifully, people don't like you as much anymore. They reject you. You're not friends with them. You lose the, the acquaintances you once have. It doesn't matter because you're blessed anyway because your transgressions have been taken away by Jesus and they, have been, they will never be counted <coughs> against you. And then Peter continues and, continues and I think he says, the most important thing to actually living a beautiful life. This is, this is the decision that you have to make. If you're going to live a life that is above average, a life that is good, a life that matters, a life that has eternal purpose, a life that goes beyond you, that, uh, that people around you look at and say, that's good, a life that is morally good, it's this. But in your hearts, revere, revere Christ as Lord. This is the decision we have to make. It's the only decision that leads to makarios, internal satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances. But I will say this about it. It's a decision that is going to cost us some of our externally uh, positive circumstances. When you revere Christ as Lord, it will mean that certain people may respect you less. When you revere Christ as Lord, it may mean that you can't be as successful in your job as another guy who doesn't revere Christ as Lord. When you revere Christ as Lord, you do give up some pleasures, some pleasures that, um, that feel good in the moment that, that other people get to experience. When a pastor gets up and says, everything will feel better if you come to Jesus, they're lying to you. And I think a lot of people uh, are leaving churches, a lot of young people especially, because they've heard their whole lives, everything will be better if you accept Jesus. And they're like, everything's not better. And the truth is some things will be worse if you accept Jesus externally. But despite it all, you can have internal satisfaction. 
But the question must be answered. Who, what are you going to make the Lord of your life? Because if it's the external things that you can feel and touch and see and smell, then you may not live as beautiful of a life, but it might feel good for a little while. At the heart of a beautiful life or not having a beautiful life is whether or not you will choose to make Jesus the Lord of your life and you will do what he has asked you to do and what he has called you to do and you will live as he has told you to live no matter what it costs you in the short term. And that will only happen if you remember that serving him is the only thing that brings internal satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances. There are tons of things that bring short external satisfaction. Are there not? And some of them are contrary to the will of God, but none of them, none of them can bring us the joy and the hope and the love that Jesus can. And so I hope that all of you will go, yeah, this I have to decide Jesus is Lord. Because if you don't, if you're, if you're kind of wishy-washy on that issue, then whenever it's a choice between being satisfied in the short term and the long term, then you always choose the short term because something else is the Lord of your life. It might be money. It, it might be relationships, romantic especially. That's a problem for people. It, it might be alcohol or drugs. It, there's a million things that can be the Lord of your life, but you can't live beautifully if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life. And so Peter says, look, not many people will be jerks to you if you live beautifully. Some will, but you can be satisfied anyway. But you have to choose Jesus. You have to make a decision to make him the one that you obey without question. And then this verse that I, I uh, just preached on not long ago, First Peter, two verses, First Peter 3, 15 and 16, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You can go back and listen to our, our series called Proclaim. You can go to creeksidebiblechurch.org slash proclaim and, and listen to me preach on this. But kind of the point that I made there is that when we live beautifully despite suffering, people are going to ask why. And when we ask why, we must be ready to tell them about how our story and the story of Jesus intersect and why that has made a difference in our lives. And we must do this with gentleness and respect so that when they go, well, I hate you, even though you you seem really awesome, they can be put to shame. Now, we may never see that they're put to shame. They may never walk up to us and go, I feel so ashamed that I made fun of you for your beautiful life. But somewhere inside of them, they'll be ashamed that they've slandered you despite your excellent behavior. And then Peter says this other thing that I don't think we believe most of the time in verse 17. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We've already learned in this book that we won't go through bad things unless God thinks it's important. Uh, we saw that in every trial, if we're Christians, there is a reason for that trial. That doesn't mean that we will see the outcome of those reasons, that there is a one-to-one -one kind of ratio. Well, I went through this, and now I get this, you know. But in heaven someday, I, the Bible 
declares, I, I could say, uh, we will go, oh, I get it now. Now I know why I went through that. Sometimes it happens in this life. You know that, right? I mean, you've seen like these bad things take place maybe in your life. You've been a Christian for a long time. And then, you know, you get three years down the road and you go, oh, I see why that happened now. But that's not always the case. But Peter has told us that if we go through trials, then we can know that it is God allowing us to go through those trials for good reason. Romans 8, 28 uh, says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we know that, and we also know this, everybody will suffer at some point. All of us, it's going to happen. You are going to suffer. You're going to go through difficult times. You're going to struggle along at certain points. And and the big question is, uh, when those trials come, are you going through them because you have done good or are you going through them because you have done evil? Uh, Around the world, there are people, and you can point to certain situations in history of our country, uh, but all over the world, there are people who are imprisoned for doing good things, right? You can think of people who have staged um, protests that are positive and for positive things. You can think of people who have uh, lived out the Christian faith uh, despite their government saying that Christianity wasn't allowed. You can go down a long list. People who have refused to do things that, that they have been pushed to do by their governments, but they saw them as morally wrong, and, and so the government arrested them and threw them in prison. Uh, there's a million examples of people who are in prison for doing wrong things. There's about uh, a billion more to exaggerate uh, examples of people who are in prison for doing bad things, right? I mean, that's what we think of when we think of prison. And Peter says, trials will come. He's already told us, if you're a Christian, you can know there's reason for those trials. But the big question is, will you go through them because you have done right or because you have done wrong? And he says what we already know, but sometimes we forget, it's better to go through those trials because you have done good things, because people have rejected your beautiful life, not because people have rightfully rejected your ugly life. You can think about people who go through things that are a consequence of their actions. And Peter would say, It would have been better if you just lived beautifully. You would have gone through bad things anyway. But live beautifully because it's better to suffer when you're doing good than when you're not doing good. It's better to suffer trying to have a a positive impact on society than just being a jerk or doing something stupid or doing something that was against your moral stances or against the moral stances of God. And I believe, and and you can correct me later if, if I'm wrong, but I believe that some of you think if I just take shortcuts in my Christian faith, then I won't suffer as much. And Peter says, you'll suffer anyway. So you might as well suffer for doing what is right and what is good and what is positive, knowing that you're striving to live a beautiful life. It's better that way. So the question is not, get this in your heads, will I suffer or will I not suffer? You will. The question is, will you suffer for doing good or will you suffer for doing bad? 
Will you suffer because you're a jerk to people or because you express the love of God to people? Will you suffer because you're honest or will you suffer because you've lied? Will you suffer because you've done your best to, to have a good marriage or will you suffer because you, you left the marriage and said, well, that was too tough anyway? Uh, the question is not whether or not you will suffer. The question is whether or not you will suffer for doing good or for doing bad. And, and it's obvious that Peter, to Peter and to me, and I think to you, that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing bad. We rarely remember people who suffer for doing bad. They have to do a lot, a lot of bad, right? But we often remember the people who suffer for doing good, even if it's just a little bit of good. So Peter says, hey, if you try to live a beautiful life, not that many people will be jerks to you. But if they are, remember that you're blessed because of your relationship with God and make him the Lord of your life. And remember that it's just better to suffer while striving to do what God wants you to do than it is to suffer when not, because you're going to suffer anyway. And then he points to the example of Jesus. And he says like the five most confusing weird verses in all the Bible. 22, yeah, five verses. Uh, Like the five most, I don't know, just weird. It's just weird. Ready? Let's read it. Uh, I got your attention now. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Let's stop there. That's not weird. Uh, Jesus was a perfect example of what it meant to suffer for doing good. His goal when he came to earth was to save you from your sins. People rejected him in his perfection, nailed him to a cross, even though he had lived the most beautiful life ever, according to almost every person. And yet he did it anyway. He just suffered for doing good. So follow his example. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He was resurrected. That's a key part of our faith. And then it gets strange. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to <coughs> sorry, him. So it gets a little weird, right? Because this is not, we don't, this is not like an Easter passage that we preach. Jesus died, he rose again, and then he went and preached to imprisoned spirits somewhere, somewhere that we aren't sure about. And so obviously this is a controversial verse. I mean, this first part about preaching to spirits, what does that mean? So the Mormons would tell you that this is (coughs) Jesus going to hell and offering people a second chance to become Christians. This is Jesus preaching the gospel in some spirit place and saying, hey, here's what's happened. I died for your sins. I rose again. Another chance. Do you want to go to heaven? Accept me. You don't want to go to heaven? Then don't accept me. Now, the problem with that Mormon teaching is that it is solely based on this verse and this verse 
alone and probably some things in the Book of Mormon. But, but it kind of neglects the whole of Scripture. And as we study the Bible, we never want to neglect the whole of Scripture. We want to look at Scripture comprehensively to see what it says. And the Bible seems to declare that we have a choice to make in this life. We accept Jesus as our Savior or we don't. And we either reap the rewards and the benefits of that salvation when we die, if we accept it, or we... Uh, reap the consequences of of that decision if we choose not to accept Jesus. And so I think that we can't see it that way. Instead, what I I think we ought to see is Jesus talking trash, frankly. I think that's what this comes down to. Uh, There is a world of evilness that rejects Jesus, Satan and his minions. The word that is used for proclaimed there is not the the word that would mean preach the gospel. There is actually a word created uh, in the New Testament for preaching the gospel. Uh, And it means to proclaim the good news. But here the word is simply uh, caruso, which means to proclaim to state something. And so what I believe is going on is Jesus in victory going into spirit prison, wherever that might be. Um, What we believe is that people that were waiting for Jesus' resurrection, his ascension into heaven, were, were stored in a place until he could die for their sins. Some, and this is my belief as I read scripture, some on a good side that was nice and some on a bad side that wasn't so good waiting for uh, their destiny of hell. And, and, and so Jesus goes down after being resurrected and looks at the evil spirits and says, I did it. You rejected me And yet I did this for the whole of humanity. You tried to kill me off, but you couldn't kill me off. It is Jesus simply declaring, this is what's happened. And so that's the first part. It's still weird, but I think it's the explanation. Jesus dies, he rises again, he's won, right? He has won victory for everybody who will place their faith in him, and he declares it to these spirits. Now, the, the next weird part is that he starts to wrap this up in the story of Noah and the ark. Noah and the ark, you've heard that story. And it's strange because he starts to like launch into this metaphor and the metaphor gets a little weird because he says this thing that rubs every good Baptist wrong. He says uh, that this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And you go, wait, if you've grown up in the church, I didn't think baptism actually saved me. I thought baptism was a symbol uh, of my belief in Jesus and that The faith in Jesus is what saves me. And I would say you are right. That is what I believe. I do not think that baptism is uh, salvific, that it has uh, a place in our salvation process except in its obedience to Jesus as a symbol of what has taken place inside of us when we accept Jesus. And so I think there's two keys to understanding this weird verse. The first is that Peter actually feels a need to say, not the removal of dirt from the body. So I think Peter feels a need to say, not actually getting dunked in water. I'm talking symbolically here. Do you see that? That's, there's a dash in the NIV version. Dash, not the removal of dirt, not getting dunked. I think what Peter's saying is I'm not talking the actual uh, dunking in water is the thing that saves you, but I'm speaking in a metaphorical sense. Now, here's the other part. 
that you need to understand is that he is speaking in a metaphorical sense and he is using the story of Noah and the ark as a metaphor or a type of what happens when we accept Jesus. And he says about these people that they, eight and all who got onto the ark, were saved through the water. Now it's fascinating. This is my connection. Not everybody would agree with this. Uh, some people would say that in this story, the water is kind of the Jesus part. But, but when we talk about baptism, what we actually talk about is that when we get dunked underneath to symbolize our faith, that is us showing that we have been connected to the death of Jesus. You see, we all deserve death. We did. But Jesus came, died on a cross so that we could be connected to that death. And when he died, he died for all of our sins. And when we become Christians, it's like our lie, our deaths, I guess, have now been wrapped up in his death. And we don't have to die eternally for our sins anymore. And so here, when Peter talks about the water of baptism and the water of uh, the, the rain that came down when Noah was building his ark, I think what he's saying is that we have been saved from death by Jesus. And I think what Peter is saying is that the ark and the eight people who were saved were symbolic of the cross and the people who have placed their faith in what Jesus did on it. You see, the whole world at the time of Noah, if you didn't know this, was it had gone crazy, man. I mean, things were going nuts. Like, I think more nuts than, than what we think about our world today. Things were just going crazy. And so God was gonna punish people. And he sent rain. And he told this guy named Noah, build an ark and the ark will save you. And the people who got on the ark were saved. And the rain killed everybody else. And it shows us that I, we have a choice. And it's a choice that's wrapped, us, wrapped up in us having a beautiful life. And the choice is this, die in the waters of God's punishment or get on the ark and be connected to the death of Jesus and be saved. And if we choose to get on the ark and we choose therefore to be saved, then we become followers of Jesus. And Jesus now at the end of this, if you'll notice, sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers that are all in submission to him. And we should, as people who are on the ark, also be in submission to him. And so it doesn't matter if you're rejected, hurt, pushed down for being good. You ought to be good and live beautifully because you have been saved by Jesus and the blood that he shed on the cross. And you have been brought into the ark where he is in total control and has ultimate authority. You see, you live a beautiful life because it's better to live a beautiful life. You live a beautiful life despite the persecution that might come because it's better to suffer for doing good than not doing good. You live a beautiful life because, because uh, you know that you have internal satisfaction. It isn't based on how people treat you, but you also live a beautiful life just simply as a response to Jesus saving you from the flood of death and bringing you into the ark. Can you imagine what it was like for Noah? 
God says, hey, Noah, I'm gonna send the flood. It's gonna kill everybody, but you, I want you to build a boat because I wanna save you. And Noah probably watched people drown to death. Think about that, die. But he was on a boat saved by God. And can you imagine how easy it would be to want to respond to that saving gift in a beautiful way that honored and pleased and glorified God? I mean, Noah, the rest of his life would have this visual image of people drowning before him, but he dry on a boat because God loved him that much. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we're on the boat and our lives ought to be a response to the incredible love that saved us when we deserved death. Noah probably thought I wasn't that much better than neighbor Bob, you know? I wasn't that much better of a guy, but I had faith and I built the ark and God saved me. So I want to live completely for him. And so here's the deal. Jesus is the ark, he's your savior and Lord. And if you're a Christian, you ought to treat him as such, living beautifully despite what might come your way, knowing that it is better to to suffer for doing good than for doing bad, but also knowing that no matter if you suffer, you need to live for Jesus because of the beautiful gift of salvation that he has offered you. Rachel, who I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, she just fell in love with Jesus. You saw that in the words she wrote. And she wrote this, and it's what I want from this series, and it's what I want from all of you. It's what I want because you know the satisfaction, if you're a Christian, that Jesus can bring. It's what I want from you because you know that Jesus is Lord. It's what I want from you if you know how wonderful a gift it was to be brought unto the ark. Here's what she said. I won't be labeled as average. And as I look around at most Christians, they're okay with average. And I don't want you to be labeled as average. I want you to be labeled as beautiful. And you can live beautifully if you'll declare Jesus as Savior as Lord, believing that it's better to suffer for doing good and trusting him for your internal satisfaction. I would say it this way, live according to God's blessings and not in fear of the world's oppressing, if you'll go with me. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just pray for all of us that we, want, uh, we wouldn't accept, be okay with average, but that we would want to live beautifully as a response to the beautiful things that you have given us. Lord, I pray that we would remember that, that most people will be cool to us if we're, if we're living beautifully, but some won't and, and we wouldn't care because we have such a satisfaction knowing the amazing grace that you have had for us that, that it just doesn't matter anymore. Um, Lord, I don't want any of these people to be average. I want us to live beautifully. And so help us uh, put these words into practice in our lives, Lord. Uh, Forsaking all to serve you. In your holy name, amen.